Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Rosa Loinger. She is a Cuban-born American art conservator and founder of RLA Conservation of Art and Architecture, LLC, the U.S.'s largest woman-owned materials conservation practice. She is author of Tropicana Nights, The Life and Times of the Legendary Cuban Nightclub, a book on Havana's pre-Castro nightclub era, The Encanto File, a play produced off-Broadway by the Women's Project and Productions and published in Rowing to America and 16 other short plays, and most recently, the memoir Dwell Time. She holds an MA in Art History and Conservation from NYU's Institute of Fine Arts, lectures regularly at numerous universities around the country, and serves on the boards of the Amigos of the Cuban Heritage Collection at University of Miami, Florida Association of Museums, the Partnership for Sacred Places, and the Florida Association of Public Art Professionals, and writes regularly for academic and popular media about conservation, the arts, and Cuba. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much, Ronit. I'm so happy that you're here, and I would love for you to begin. This is a very, very long resume that you have, and I had to cut some of it <laughs> to fit okay. into our time. But I would love to begin by talking a little bit about your new memoir, Dwell Time, and especially what that term means, and you know, just your, your basic overview of the book. Certainly. Well, as you mentioned, I'm an art conservator. I work on historic buildings and sculpture materials conservator. Our profession is divided into various specialties and I specialize in three-dimensional things, sculpture, mosaics, marble, bronze, etc. And our profession is, a, is one that is a little bit esoteric. People don't know a lot about it. There's a lot of popular literature about us that paints us as this, as like you know, basement-dwelling, nitpicky people with a <laughs> tiny swab, or totally over-the-top heroics like in those books where there's a conservator who restores murals and is a spy at the same time, things are completely <laughs> unlikely. But nobody really understands the, the ins and outs of what we do and how we approach our, our, our practice. And so for many years, I've been realizing that this is a book that needs to be written, a book for, the gener- for a general audience about our profession. And in 2009, when I was uh, living in Rome, I had a fellowship at the American Academy in Rome, I came upon Primo Levi's wonderful small memoir, The Periodic Table. Mm-hmm. And in that book, Primo Levi, who was an Italian Jewish chemist, who wrote numerous books about his years in, in Auschwitz and the concentration camps and the war, but The Periodic Table avoids the darkest material and uses his work as a chemist as an organizing metaphor for telling a story about his work and his Italian Jewish ancestors. And the light bulb went off in my head. I thought, this is the way to structure a book about conservation by materials. But I didn't know what to do about the family story when I first came across this in 2009. Mm-hmm. And then over time, it, it came to me. And so that's really what inspired me to write the book. It was a desire to showcase my profession for the world at large, but it wound up being a book that also used the tenets of my profession, conservation, to create a kind of healing structure for my relationship to my family. Well, this is so interesting. Uh, I didn't realize you had a model because I was going to ask you about how you you arrived on the form here. And you really do tie in the conservation with people and relationships. And you also use this metaphor of corrosion and patinas. And so I actually have some excerpts that I wanted to quickly share and then have you remark on. So this is really interesting and I learned so much because I not only learned about Cuba and your family and I not only learned about your relationship with your parents and your work but I also learned about nuance in this this profession that I never would have known at all like I I learned so much and I and I'm not a chemistry person I'm not 
very, you know, as soon as you, as soon as people start bringing out test tubes, I like run for the hills. So <laughs> I, I, but I, I was engaged and I, I tried, I, I bent myself to like, I stretched my mind. And so here's one of the many interesting excerpts I pulled out. So you write, conservators are trained to use caution when attributing the cause of damage. Terms like appear to and evidence of are standard in our field. A glaze could be detaching because the clay body is not porous enough to hold the fine vitreous surface in place. It could have been subject to water, mold, etc., etc. So our diagnostics try to take everything possible into account. The way things were made, their history, use, and the chemistry of their condition and fabrication. And this is this end quote that I've really highlighted here. To me, the difference between good and sloppy conservation is a commitment to doubt. We come to our work with a body of knowledge, but our goal is to look at every object without preconceptions. So this is so interesting to me as someone who thinks about memoir a bunch and how this might relate to memoir writing and family and interpretations of past events. And I was hoping you can talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. As a conservator, when you approach your work, you know, we know a lot of things like we see something and after many years of practice, you have a pretty clear idea of what happened. But every single work of art that you approach has had a different history, has had different challenges. So even if your solutions are going to be identical, it behooves you to kind of approach it with a blank slate. And what, how this relates to people and, and memoir is that every single human being has a story. And people present certain attributes. You know, we're, we all make such so many snap judgments about people hmm. and how we relate to them. And the truth is that every single story is complicated and layered. And obviously we can't go around having that compassion for everybody even when they do horrendous things. But in our day-to-day -day life, we can see that in that way. And I feel that the memoirist is especially charged to do that because when we tell a story, it's really evident that we're telling the story from our point of view. And when I wrote Dwell Time, because I, I needed, I knew that there was a pretty good chance that my mother was going to be alive when this book was published. And I knew that there were going to be things in that book that were going to be hard for her. And yet I had no book if I didn't write them. Mm -hmm. So I was going to have to write them with an understanding that she may not see herself that way and that it was appropriate and important for me to, to recognize that the way I was seeing things was from my point of view and that we all kind of are interlocked Mm -hmm. In this way, you know, we're like nowadays everybody talks about that big mat of fungus that lives under the surface and all the trees are connected. Yeah. I kind of feel that that's the way we all are in a way, you know. Right. And there's nothing that exists in true isolation. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to our behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. You talk about in your book, this friend of yours, Linda, and how, well, she it's interesting. She says... Your mother might have been violent, but she always showed you love. And and you write that, you know, you thought about it for a minute and that Linda gave you these books about psychology and personality disorders. And your mother seemed to be described perfectly in black and white, you know, all of her volatility and her anger and uh, the childhood abandonment and this, this, you know, the paranoia. So you write that this was the first template you'd ever seen to potentially understand your mom and yeah. feel empathy for her. And I wonder, you asked this question and I was hoping you could reflect on it. Sure. You you write that, uh, quote, if my mother's behavior didn't just seem, quote, out of control, if it might be literally outside of her control, what burden did this place on my relationship to her? Was I now as an adult supposed to set aside, forgive, endure, continue to allow her to treat me any way she wanted? And I think this is so this is so relevant for all of us who mm -hmm. have had parents. And it comes up a lot when we're writing our stories about the the effect people have had on us and how that has altered our lives and when we're writing about them, how we depict them and where do we put 
you know, where do we put this information we have about how hard life might have been for someone when they in turn have maybe made life so hard for us? So I'm hoping, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. Of course. You know, that is really the the the, the crux of what it means to grow yourself as an, into an adult. Mm-hmm. And because we're all a product of our upbringing. And they who brought us up are a product of their upbringing. And as we evolve in, in, you know, as human beings evolve, those of us who have an opportunity, who have the wherewithal, the means, the mindset to allow yourself to peel off your own layers of resentment and pain, because it's not, as, it's not so much a, a question of like, do I want to understand them? Of course you want to understand them. Nobody wants to not, not understand people. But like, for mm-hmm. example, I'll pick up the phone sometimes and listen, and I do a ton of work to understand my mother and therapy and writing about her and talking with her. And sometimes she'll just say something in a particular tone of voice. Here, I'll give you an example. I'll call her and I'll say, you know, I think I'm getting a cold again. And she'll say, well... With the amount of running around you do, of course. And I'm ready to explode. I'm just ready to blow <laughs> my stack because all I hear, I just revert back into a space where I just think everything's my fault. You blame me for everything. And so what I'm, to get back to what I was saying, if those of us have the wherewithal to, to kind of grow that muscle that allows for not, not being reactive, for being compassionate, for knowing that balance between saying no to this and allowing someone else to be seen and heard, that is, I think, the the real place where change and growth and development happens. Mm. And it's challenging because, you know, here's the one I struggle with, okay? Mm. It is pretty well documented. It's almost like I think every document, that there's some huge percentage of the population of child abusers, sec- child sexual abusers, like the gigantic population ha- have been abused themselves. Mm-hmm. It's almost like everybody, you know, not, mm-hmm. not 100%. So what do we do with that? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's hard. That's hard. But I, my feeling is, as with conservation, when I approach a really difficult, complex treatment, I don't start with the hardest part of it. Because, like, sometimes we'll look at something and it's huge and daunting and my staff will say, how are we going to do this? How are we going to manage to get that mosaic back up onto the wall? And I say to them, I don't know. Let's start with picking up the broken pieces that are sitting in the dirt. And then let's see what it takes to clean it. I always go for low-hanging fruit because you can chip away at a problem that way and get to the crux of it. We always do in conservation. So I wonder if as human beings, if we can just start, like, you know, I've made a practice. I live in Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time in the car, and there are a lot of people on the road that you just want to blare your horn at, and (laughs) and you want to kill them. You you know, have you seen that TV show Beef? We just started watching. Oh, I want to watch it. Actually, I haven't started yet. It's It's on my list. We just started it. It's kind of amazing because it's really about this. It's about these two people, and they're so lonely. They're each suicidal. They're so upset. Mm. For very different reasons and they get into it with each other and my feeling is so when I'm in LA I, just, I have started with that I've started with that just to try to be a little bit more gracious and generous to the people that I encounter mm-hmm. you know you know where it's really hard for me I travel a lot and I have anxiety when I travel because I think it's a it's a um, leftover from leaving Cuba I read about it in the book mm-hmm. and when I'm at the line to get on an airplane I am just seething with anxiety about needing to be the first person on the plane. <laughs> and, and I get... It's and just it's, irrational. It just kicks so in. Irrational. And, and if someone gets ahead of me on the line, I feel like ready to just decompose. <laughs> but, but again, you know, that it is, that's it. I, you know, I realize I don't serve this at all by doing anything about that. And in fact, if we can work against those instincts, I find that when I say to myself, Rosa, you're about to explode at this person who just snuck in ahead of you while you were standing online. But what if you just like let it go because you're all going to get on the plane? And mm-hmm. I find that when I can practice that, 
in these tiny increments, it kind of really does make a difference. Yeah. And I think also you talk about your ex-husband in initials. So he is AB throughout the book. Can you talk about your decision to include you know, your your ex-husband the way you did and to yes. give him these initials and his response to the book. Let's start okay. with that. My ex-husband and I are good friends. Mm-hmm. We um, get along very well with each other. As I write about it in the book, I think I was very young and very much not having worked out a lot of the issues that I've now worked out in later life and in this book. And, you know, our marriage was fraught. It's not all, it wasn't all my fault because mm-hmm. nothing is all one person's fault, but I would say I definitely have more than 50% of the blame. Mm. I gave him initials rather than his name because I talk about betraying him. Mm-hmm. I talk about tre- mistreating him. And I didn't want that to be out there in the world, that this mm-hmm. human being who is a good person and is, um, you know, has uh, rights books of his own, actually. You know, I didn't want personal information about him out there in the world in that way. So when I wrote the manuscript, I sent it to him. And I said, look, I want you to read this. You're in it. And I want you to tell me if there's anything here that you don't want. And if so, then I'll deal with it. But he read the manuscript and he said, no, there's nothing you have to change. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, the only thing he told me is that uh, I had misattributed the line, the science of filth to him when it actually was said by someone else on the archaeological <laughs> dig. But I said, listen, I'm not introducing a new character. The line, the <laughs> you line is yours, okay? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so, he, so he's got a lot of integrity then. He does. Like, don't, he give does. Me that, don't give me and that clever line. <laughs> and then the funny thing is, if you notice also, I don't mention my son's name at all in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in my acknowledgments, where I do acknowledge him because he's one of the joys, the great joys of my life, I don't use his last name because that would have easily sure. pointed to his dad. You depict your ex-husband in a really balanced light. You more interrogate yourself. You don't throw him under the bus. So you really do show that relationship and kind of attribute the relationship's demise and, and the complications that you experienced a lot in part to you. And I think that I, I appreciated this because I did I did empathize with you for this. I, I wasn't wondering why you were going to destroy your life. I thought, is this going to work? Is is this marriage going to happen mm-hmm. and last? And I wanted it to work because you, you both seemed like really nice people. Okay. I felt bad, but I also sort of felt like I saw the writing on the wall. It's hard. You know, it's really hard when you come from families with such trauma and emotional dysregulation and abuse to learn how to be in a relationship. It would be sort of like magic. It would be a magic trick, I think, a magic trick to be able to overcome that quickly without ever having had issues in a relationship. Exactly. I know? agree with you. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. So your mom, yes. your mom and her reaction to the book, I'm so curious. So my mother, what, what I did... <laughs> First of all, she shared a lot of stories with me. She knew I was writing it, Mm -hmm. um, and she knew that I was writing a book about conservation and about me and our family, and I asked her questions. She loves to talk about her history and her past and whatever, and some of the stories were ones I'd been hearing for years, but then uh, then I started to ask her specific things, and she told me some of those juicy stories, like that great story about her finding $18,000 in a mm-hmm. suitcase because mm-hmm. she thought my father was having an affair. And, you know, she shared these stories with me. She saw me taking notes as she wrote them, as she told me. And so when the book was full and, and shaped, I said to her, she wanted to read it, obviously. She, you know, I, I want, and I certainly wanted her to read it before it came out. And I said, this is what I did. My mother doesn't know anything about how books are edited, so I gave it to her in fragments. I said, here's the beginning. I gave her the first, uh, I guess, the first three chapters, which are before, which are about her and her childhood and her suffering and her losses and how her in-laws didn't like her and her struggles in poverty and abandonment. Um, she read that. Then I decided to give her the end the stuff that is all about me and my bad behavior and the loss of my father, which again paints her in the same light Mm -hmm. as heroic and someone who suffered. 
and the very last chapter where we, re- you know, where we are together. Mm-hmm. And then I gave her the middle, beginning with that very difficult chapter, chapter four, which is the chapter where we arrive in Miami and she is beside herself with grief and fear mm-hmm. and takes it all out on me as a four and five year old child. And so what happened was she read it, she liked it. And when I gave her that middle section, she was in shock. She said, I don't remember doing any of that. She never questioned whether mm-hmm. she did. Mm-hmm. She didn't question me. She just said, I can't remember that. She said to me, this is the one thing, was I really so awful? Was I really so awful to dad, to my father? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was so awful to him. And I said to her, look, you were... And he was awful to you, and yet you were wonderful to each other also because you did spend 62 years married to each other, and there were some lovely times. My parents shared one thing that was remarkable to me, and my ex-husband and I shared it too. They had an incredible sense of humor amongst, between themselves. They used to make each other laugh all the time. My ex-husband and I did that as well. Our son's a comedian, actually. So it was hard for her. And now, and so, you know, I gave it to her in this kind of sort of tricky, dishonest way where I gave her the sections not entirely in order. And now I'm going to give it to her. She wants it again. She wants to read it from start to finish. And I said to her, listen, this is going to be hard for you again. And I want to make sure you aren't upset or traumatized. No one who reads this book sees you as a villain. No one has said what a horrible person. They said that, I suffered through some things because of the time when you were so upset, but no one sees you as a monster at all. Um, and, and she said, no, no, I can handle it. I can take this. I, I'm ready for it. My mother's a pistol. When you actually, yeah, I gathered. <laughs> when you hear her talking, I mean, her bravado is off the, off the charts, you know. But mm-hmm. um, so, I'm, I, so now that's the next thing I have to do is mail it to her. And, and see how she does. You know, last thing you want to... She's 91. Mm-hmm. She's 91. And I talk to her every day. I see her. I live in L.A. I go to Miami probably every six to eight weeks for about a week or two. Because I didn't want to abandon her a second time. It was kind of a gift to me to be able to make her feel... My mother feels that she and I have, like a spectacularly close relationship. She, hmm. she says to me, you know, you and I are so close, so few daughters and mothers are as close as you and I are. And to that, some extent that is true. That, mm-hmm. Because I, I share with her as much as I can share with her, knowing that sometimes if I forget myself and I take it too far, I'm going to go beyond what, It sounds obnoxious to say what she's capable of. I don't mean it mentally or intellectually, but I mean socially and, you know, Mm -hmm. from her time and place, right? Mm -hmm. Like my mother, this is the best, you'll love this. My mother will call me on a given day. I'll talk to her. Usually it's 5 o'clock in L.A., uh, 8 o'clock in Miami, and she'll say to me, so uh, did you work today? I say, I'll say, sure. She says, no, no, no. I mean, did you actually work in conservation or were you just writing? (laughs) (laughs) And and try as I might, I could never say to her, conservation is a cakewalk compared to writing. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So this is right. And I remember one time she said to me, this is, this is a joke between me and my husband where my mother was uh, not well. She wasn't feeling well. And I, um, she called me one morning. And I was doing something. I guess I had the phone off because I was writing. This is years ago. And uh, later when I called her back, I said, my God, you, you're so sick. What happened? Why didn't you tell me? She said, I tried to tell you, but you were too busy writing. She said it in exactly that way, as if, <laughs> as if writing was like, you know, going to have a massage. That's, I think she thinks of it. As, yeah, yeah. I understand the, that. Yeah, I have some writers in my family, so they kind of get it. But it does seem it does seem like a little amorphous if you don't do it. And and if you're not a writer, it's hard to fathom exactly, exactly how much it takes out of us. But so speaking of writing, what part of dwell time, of writing dwell time, challenged you more than others? What aspects? Interestingly, the, the, the challenging part was threading the needle 
with the a couple things. One is threading the needle with my marriage to make sure that I didn't reveal any more than I had to in order to not sort of create a situation that would be hurtful or embarrassing to people that I love. Mm-hmm. That was hard. Also, writing about some of the relationships that I had that were less than ideal, some of my work partnerships that really mm-hmm. failed, mm-hmm. I, I was careful to really shine the light on my own failures because it's really easy to point the finger. And yeah, I can say that at least one of those two partners was absolutely awful, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and... Um, but not, you know, but again, it's the same thing. They all came from their own place and we didn't have, we were young and our egos were thorny. There were barbed, you know, I think of, of it like, you know, those like sea urchins that have all those spiny things yes. on them. And that kind of thing softens over time. So those, mm-hmm. those things were hard. And then every so often in the narrative, you get to a place and you think, this chapter isn't working at all. This is terrible. I don't know what I'm writing about. What am I talking about? Invariably, those chapters turn out to be the best ones. I remember mm. this from Tropicana and I. There was a chapter that I like could not get right. And I worked at it and worked at it. It was like slogging through mud. I thought this <laughs> is going to lead like crap. And it was, and it's a great chapter. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was, those are the hard things. Mm-hmm. The hard things. And, and also keeping the metaphor from, from becoming forced. Mm-hmm. Well, right, because I, well, that is an interesting point because I love that I learned that you you gathered this structure and this idea for the form from the periodic table by Primo Levi, and I think that you know the, it's interesting. And you actually write about corrosion and patinas and the metaphors. You actually write, write and I have it right here on page one thirteen. I'm going to just read it. Corrosion and patinas are nothing more than entropic transformation of metallic copper into the oxides, carbonates sulfates and sulfides that the metal was extracted from those green black brown and red products are copper's way of reverting to a state where it is less reactive metaphors abound for this don't we all wish to revert to states of being that are calmer to be less reactive to our surrounding and circumstances to go back to the times before we were exposed to orphanages exile abuse at the hands of a beloved parent or the death of a lover so you go on and you write if only our damaged states of being were as beautiful as copper patinas so i really did appreciate this and and now i know how you arrived on this narrative choice how did you calibrate when it was enough, when you needed to pull away from this? Did you have help, editorial help on this, or did you follow your intuition? Well, a couple of things. Um, I kind of had a bit of intuition on it, and invariably my editor said, too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> did they say, enough with the metaphors? They, they kept, she kept saying, my eyes are glazing over here. There's too much technical <laughs> stuff. Then, of course, certain other readers like, my good friend, the novelist Dana Sviota, said, I want more of the conservation and the technical, but she's, <laughs> she's such a technical, you know, she's a, her, her writing, her novels are really technical. So um, anyway, yeah, that, yeah they, the publisher kept, because that was the hard part for me. Since I started off to write a book that showcased conservation and was using my family as sort of, the cupcake that held the carrot, the pureed carrot, if you know mm-hmm, what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I kept wanting to sort of have more pureed carrot and less cupcake. And my publisher kept saying, no, memoir readers want to hear about your family and your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not reading, not being someone that consumes that many memoirs, although when you, when, when you sent me the notes to make a list of memoirs I really like, I realized I consume more than I thought I have. <laughs> uh, I, that, took, that was the balancing act for me. Well, that, okay, so this, uh, this begs the question about choosing to write a memoir versus writing retrospective of your life in this field or what you've learned from doing this work all these years, which would have definitely been a little bit more technical and academic and less personal. So how did you know that you needed to write the memoir? I think it just was a matter of it coming together at the right time. My f- it was 2020 when I, when I actually started to write the proposal for the memoir. It was 2020. I had, it was, you know, 2020, you know what we were all yes, doing, we were in our yes. houses. 
and I started working. I, I decided to take an online writing course through Sarah Lawrence's uh, writing institute mm-hmm. online. Yes, I have a friend, actually, one of a former guest, uh, Kathy Curto, teaches there. I don't oh. know if you ever at, at Sarah Lawrence, yeah, at the writing institute. Oh wow! So I took a a writing a fiction writing class, and uh, because I'd always wanted to write a novel that took the world of Tropicana Nights and created a fictionalized story, the nightclub world of Havana in the 1950s. So I'm writing this novel, I'm writing this novel. I'm working with the Sarah Lawrence Writers Group, and then class ended, and into this memoir appears an art conservator from Romania who had studied in Rome. He literally just appeared on my page. He's like, I'm here. And I'm like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What? And I'm, I'm also a big believer that when characters show up and take over, you should make sure mm-hmm. to include them because they're mm-hmm. arriving as their guests and gifts. And so I hired a book coach to help me reconcile this new character who seemed to come from another place and had a backstory that was going to take me to, to another location. So the book coach comes to my house here in L.A. We're sitting in the backyard. I'm telling her about this guy. And she's saying, and, and so I suddenly segue into my profession and say, oh, yeah, and you know, I had often thought of writing a memoir, blah, 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 blah. And she said, you should stop what you're doing right now and focus on that memoir because that memoir will get published and <laughs> it will get published rather easily. <laughs> well, she was wrong, but I sat, <laughs> I sat down, I sat down, I, I said, okay. So I continued writing the, because, you know, when you're actively writing a book is different than the structure of, of a uh, proposal. <laughs> I worked them both simultaneously for a while and then I wrote the sample chapter. I had the full book proposal. I sent it out to a bunch of agents because I'm no longer with the agent that represented Tropicana Nights. Loads of agents wrote back to me and said, it's a great idea, but I'm not really sure how I would position it. Maybe you could write me another two or three chapters. And I'm like, no, I'm not writing this book unless I know someone's going to publish <laughs> it. And so I just put it aside and kept writing the, the novel because it was more fun, you know. Novels yeah. are fun. You can make anything up that you want. Um, your characters can fly, right? Then this particular book coach, Kristen McGinnis, calls me six months later. Six months after I just decided, okay, I've written to 20 agents. 20 agents are saying the same thing to me. I'm, I'm putting it aside. She calls me, Kristen, in the January of 2020, January of 2022, and said, listen, I'm working with this new publisher, Row House. They've been out for a year. They're a terrific publisher. I told them about your memoir. They'd like to see the proposal. I said, sure. They <laughs> called me the next day and said, we would like to publish this, but we need you to finish it by November. That was 10 months. Hmm. So I, I went home. I said, I said listen, let me, I, let me see if that's doable. I went home and I took the calendar and I mapped out what I needed to write every day to get there, and it was doable. And so mm-hmm. I said yes, because I believe when things drop out of the sky, you just grab them and do it, right? But the point here was that um, I just kept following my pleasure, right? My pleasure mm-hmm. was this novel, then this Romanian, um, this, this guy showed up who was kind of an amalgam of my grandfather and me, if you will. And then that led me there, and it led me there, and it led me there, and now here we are. Wow. Uh, and Row House. Row House published your book. Yes. yes. That, that's really exciting. Row House is a cool place. By the yeah. Way. I mean, I, I know that listeners often want to learn how people get their memoirs published and the different routes you can take. So I, I love talking about that. Now, it's time, though. We must have you read that excerpt because I, will do it right now. I cannot let you go without reading a bit from your book. And um, did we talk about what dwell time means? I think I asked, but I don't know if you actually explained. No, I didn't explain it. Can you explain that real quick and then just set this up and then read away? Okay. So dwell time is a term that can mean a number of different things. It's about, it can mean the number of, uh, the amount of time that immigrants wait at a border, the amount of time human eyes are on a website, the minutes people wait in an airport. But in conservation, it refers to the amount of time it takes for a chemical substance to work on a material. So, for example, when you put a cleaning solution on a surface, 
the amount of time that it's on that surface that it takes to do its job is its dwell time. And one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, when they tell us to wash our hands for 20 seconds, mm -hmm. it's because it takes so that much dwell time to kill viruses. That really helped me. That, that was an, another little tidbit that really helped me, that example. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what dwell time means. And so it also resonates with the amount of time my family was in Cuba, which when all is said and done wasn't that long. It was maybe almost 40 years that the entire family was there. But yet we were inexorably colored by that experience of my grandparents moving to this island instead of to the United States. Mm -hmm. And my parents were born there, and I was born there, and what that meant to the shape and structure of our family and to my sense of communing with materials, because Havana is a city of, extra of extraordinary architecture, and you can read the history of the Western Hemisphere on its face, like, like as if you're walking through a pop-up book that tells mm -hmm. you the story mm -hmm. of this entire, the last 500 years. And so... Actually, that leads into this section that I'm going to read, which is in the first chapter, and it talks about when something that happened during my first trip to Cuba, where I was, I went back in 1992 for the first time to a professional conservation conference. I had not really wanted to go back to Cuba for a long time, but then I found myself living in a place I didn't want to live and understanding how somebody might have a feeling of nostalgia for the place they came from. And anyway, long story short, I finally made my way back to Cuba after a personal loss, and this event happened that I'm going to read to you right now. Mm -hmm. A decade later, on a windy hilltop in the Cuban colonial town of Guanabacoa, I was struck by the idea that on a molecular level, both marble and human bones are made primarily of calcium carbonate. This rumination occurred to me for no particular reason while walking among the marble graves of United Hebrew Congregation Centro Macabeo Beit Chaim, Cuba's largest Jewish cemetery. I was taken there by Luis Lapius, a lanky and mustachioed preservation architect I had just met at a conference. A little bit younger than my parents, Lapidus, whose name coincidentally translates to made of stone, was also the son of Eastern European immigrants to Cuba, but he had supported the 1959 revolution and stayed when many others left the country. On the afternoon that he drove around Havana Harbor in his Soviet-made Lada, Lapidus explained that Guanabacoa is a Taino word that means sight of the waters. Although Cuba's indigenous peoples were decimated by Spanish conquistadores, their presence remains palpable in place names like Guantanamo, which means land between the rivers, and Baracoa, a remote eastern town where Christopher Columbus is said to have first landed, whose name translates to the presence of the sea. Guanabacoa Lapidus also told me, was known as a center for the practice of Afro-Cuban religions, and the cemetery's gatekeeper was among a group of santeros who cared for the resting place of Jews by pulling weeds, making sure that broken bits of headstones were collected and cataloged, and cross-referencing names and grave locations in a large ledger that was kept under lock and key. Those valiant efforts notwithstanding, the Jewish graveyard was in dire condition. Many lids were caving in from their own weight. Stars of David were missing points. Weeds sprouted through hairline cracks, and tombs were sugaring, a process that exfoliates small crystals of calcium carbonate. Inscriptions were so caked with fungus that many were hard to read. It looked like a textbook's worth of marble damage, which was the reason Lapidus had brought me here. How would you like to teach a workshop on marble restoration here, he asked. I could already hear my parents' indignation. My coming to Cuba for a historic preservation conference had seemed risky and irresponsible to them. A long-term commitment to a place still run by Fidelistas, a place that was then in the throes of post-Soviet economic freefall, would have crossed all boundaries of sanity. The idea, of course, intrigued me instantly. We could get a lot done in a week, I said. I could bring down all the tools and materials, except, of course, the solvents. Lapidus nodded and squinted toward the ocean, where thunderheads flashed with lightning. 
If you want to look for any of your relatives, do it quickly. We walked back to the gatekeeper, and I gave him my maternal grandmother's last name, Oxman. The man flipped the pages of his large book and shook his head. Neusta. What about Shia Fellman and Fanny Grunbaum, I asked, naming my maternal great-grandmother and my father's aunt. Those he had. As the clouds rolled in and the air grew humid and metallic-tasting, we trotted toward a far end of the graveyard, navigating bulging tree roots, prickly weeds, and broken sidewalks. Here's Chaya Fellman, exclaimed Lapidus. As Jews do, I placed a pebble on the flat headstone of the great-grandmother whose favoritism, according to my mother, was the purported reason her aunt sent her to an orphanage. I said the Kaddish, and Lapidus responded with Amen. We then headed in the direction of my father's Aunt Fanny's grave. Lapidus rushed ahead of me. As I hurried to catch up, the tip of my sandal snagged the broken sidewalk. I fell onto a bluish-gray tomb with dark striations. It was badly eroded, but the name was clearly visible. Rosa Oxman Fellman. The grandmother I was named for, the woman whose untimely death framed my entire life, reached out from beyond her marble gravestone to remind me that my interest in repair, the reason I became an art conservator, began right there with her in Cuba. Thank you. Thank you. What is your relationship with Cuba now? Well, I've been, before the pandemic, before 2020, I typically went to Cuba two or three times a year. Maybe two, you know, as time progressed, twice a year. I would go for about 10 days each time, and often with groups of people who wanted to see the country, um, and see the country particularly through my own lens, which is that of culture, and specifically architecture and works of art. Um, since the pandemic, I haven't been there. My last trip was in January of 2020, in part because I uh, you know, have been writing and doing other things, and Cuba really suffered greatly. The, the double whammy of the pandemic and the Trump administration really, really hit them hard, and tourists weren't really going down there. And one of the reasons I would go down is to share this knowledge that I have about the country with people. So I am supposed to go next year again for the first time in a number of years. And I feel, I, I, you know, I love Cuba. I love the country. I love the city of Havana profoundly and a number of other cities. I think of Cuba as a uniquely magical place in terms of its historic fabric, its buildings, its cultural importance worldwide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's kind of the ultimate melting pot in a different way than other places are. So I'm looking forward to going back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about your finding this career and this career finding you? You do mention in the book that you had inadvertently stumbled upon the best profession in the world for remaining far away from your family, um, you know, which at the time was really important because of how fraught that was. But what do you think? I mean, of all the careers and all the, the different professions you could have become expert at, that this was the one. You know, it's, it's kind of remarkable, you know, mm -hmm. because again, just like the way the memoir sort of happened through a series of coincidences and backdoor channels, I fell into conservation in the same way. And in a way, I, I think of it as tied to Cuba in several ways, because there is a power and a potency to opening yourself to the goodness that the world can deliver to you. It's hard to access that thread that we all have because life is tough and life kind of slams you with all kinds of different things. But I, you know, Cuba and the, the traditions of Cuba, the Afro-Cuban traditions of Cuba, the, the land and, and its, and its people kind of have that openness to it. And I've always been very fortunate in that way. doesn't mean I get everything I want. Nobody does. We all have our disappointments in life and our challenges. But that, I, I, I see that almost when I fell into that profession as like the first time that that whole thing kind of clicked into place for me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and what advice would you would you like to share with writers working on their memoirs? There's one piece of advice that I have that is more than anything else is that you have to approach it like a war a job. You know, it's not it's it's the opposite of what my mother thinks. It is a job. It is work. You have to show up and you have to have a schedule that you show up and you have to get work done when you show up. That is to say, you have to write something. You have to put words on a page. If you can't get them on the computer, then you stop and write something else and, and find yourself prompts online or give yourself a series of prompts. The only way you're going to write a book is to sit down and work on it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I understand that people can have writer's block and this and that. It sure happens to me. But then you have to do something to get through it. You have to find tools to get through it. You have to work. And so that's the first and most important thing. You have to show up. Your inspiration is not going to find you if it doesn't know where you are. Right? Um, Right? And that's the first thing. And then the second thing is find community. Find a writer's group. Find a workshop. Find people that you can read Read memoirs that you that you that are good that you like that resonate with you, and read good. Read well. Read good literature. Read read books that are well written because language kind of it's like music. It gets into your head and you and you start to hear the structure of sentences and and you're able to write better when you have that kind of thinking in your head. But if you're going to be a writer, you have to be a writer. You have to do all the things writers do, which is mm-hmm. read and show up, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. also. You know what I, I one of the some of the memoirs I love the most are the ones that don't have this like gigantic story. You know, like of course Tara Westover's fabulous mm-hmm. not a uh, memoir educated. It's an incredible story, but most of us aren't raised, you know, off the grid in Utah, and <laughs> you think, well, what am I going? to... Most of us have, you know, but everybody's got some story that they can tell about themselves and their family and um, and what happened that will shed light on the world as a whole. And knowing what yours is, is it's just a matter of sometimes putting incidents onto a page. Tell the story about that time that your brother fell out of a tree. Um, and tell the story of, you know, you're, I, by the way, Roni, I was not familiar with your memoir, but when I saw it, it just blew me away. I can't believe I'd not known about it. It's, I just got it. And I'm about to read, I'm going to read it as soon as I finish what I'm reading right now. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you have a remarkable story. You have an extraordinary story, but not everybody has an extraordinary story. And frankly, I don't think I had an extraordinary story. Yes, we came from Cuba and that was interesting. And yes, I had a mother who was, uh, you know, off the rails sometimes. But as I say, my mother wasn't off the rails the way other people's mothers are. She didn't, she didn't like starve me in a cage you know what I mean Mm -hmm. she didn't break my bones or anything like that it was just your run-of-the-mill dysfunction but (laughs) well but I feel like you know when I was reading about the young you uh, when you first especially got to Miami I felt terrible for the mood swings and how how you were growing up in in that kind of shaky environment the mood swings the violence right I mean it's all a continuum and right. we don't right. as, as I as I've written about we don't need to out pain each other because exactly. it's, it's right exactly. it's not about that it's about a, a search a self-reflection and a self-discovery and figuring out patterns and connecting the dots just a little bit so that there's sort of a momentum to our stories and so many other things as well and of course you know one right. person's one person's searing memory is another person's end is it happened right so that's what makes it our memoir right exactly. the way that we decide to look at it and show our readers and educated would you say i know i asked you for a, a few recommendations so should i put educated on that list then yes and i'll give you a few um some that you will of course go yes of course and others that you may not have even heard of i adore Trevor Nev- Trevor Noah's um, memoir, Born, Born, a, Born Crime. a Crime. So good. Especially he narrates it. Yes. Have you heard it? Oh, absolutely. I heard yeah. it on an audio book. I just couldn't, you know, it was wonderful. I love Gary Steingart's Little Failure. Of course, Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. Mm-hmm. And I love, even though it's super weird, is H is for Hawk. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I was just using that in a class, actually, oh, really? uh, when we were talking about narrators. It's funny. It doesn't come up a lot on this show, but right. it is, it's definitely a strong memoir. Right. And, and, and talk about a book that's full of technical detail that yes. sometimes makes your eyes glaze over, you know. <laughs> um, but, but it's so powerful. But here's two. Um, my editor, Gina Frangelo, wrote a memoir called Blow Your House Down. Mm-hmm. That is, do you know it? Oh, yes. Yes. Gina is a big part of the memoir community and she a sure well-loved editor and writer. And yeah. I love Gina. Gina yeah. was great. She just, I really attribute a lot of this book's um, working to her. Yeah, I love Blow Your House Down. And Gina's husband has an incredible memoir, uh, Rob Roberge. It's a book called Liar, which mm-hmm. is, again, one of those books that is is so interesting because it's structured very differently than any other memoir I've ever read. Hmm. Um, okay, that's good to know. I love I love learning about different structures as well. And then, of course, Reina Grande, The Distance Between Us. Great. Well, you are right. I had heard of some of these and had not read some of the other ones or even heard of them. So I'll c- include those in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Can I give you one more? Yes, yes. <laughs> And this is not everybody's cup of tea, but if you're a reader, this is the best. This Bob Gottlieb's avid reader. Okay. Bob Gottlieb, the great New Yorker editor and Knopf editor. It's a lot of it is a little bit of like I I met this one and I met that one and this one was my best friend. But just when you see the, are you saying name dropping a little name dropping? It's like name dropping beyond belief. But he was that guy. He knew everybody and he published everybody. He can't help it, Rosa. He knew everyone. Yeah, he can't help it. (laughs) And um, lastly, where can people find you? Oh, I'm so easy to find. First of all, (laughs) because I don't think anybody else has my name. I think, you know, you can find me through one of my two websites, either my webs- my, my writer's website, which is just my name, rosalowinger.com, or our studio, RLA Conservation. And on Instagram, I'm just rosa underscore lowinger. But if you want to really find me, just write to, just write me an email because people sometimes send me an email through Instagram and I don't even know how to find I know sometimes they end up in the hidden requests yeah I know I just found a couple from two weeks ago and I had to write to those lovely people it was not spam it was real thank you so much for bringing your story and your insight to this conversation I'm so happy to have you as a guest I'm so happy to be here thank you for tuning in to let's talk memoir for more about this episode and my guest please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.